Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of the forgiveness of our sins, many sins of the past, of the present, and the future, all taken care of by that one perfect suffering and offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for eternal life. We thank you for granting us the ability to come into your holy presence. We thank you for the promise of the resurrection, the glorification, the incorruption that shall come with that, all, that whole package. We thank you for all the saints from every corner of the world who name Christ according to this gospel. We pray for them. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are battling all issues of life. We pray for Sister Kim, who is battling cancer, and Sister Joy, have mercy upon them, grant them grace. And all the saints battling all kinds of weaknesses, illnesses, with needs, have, them, have, have mercy on them, Lord. I pray for help as I speak this morning, that I may speak that which is true and faithful. Give your people ears to hear. Help us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Good morning to one and all. Wherever you are joining us now, I think we are on Facebook, YouTube, and some on audio. I pray we won't have any hiccups, but we are not new to hiccups if we are sinners. <laughs> but the beauty of God's grace is that it covers all our sins and our weaknesses. It is a wonderful thing to know the God of creation, the God of mercy, the God of love, as he truly is, otherwise he would not have saved us. He had to be pleased in himself to want to save us. There wasn't anything attractive about ourselves. He did not need us to be in heaven. He does not need anything. But he was pleased to get us to be vessels of his love and of his mercy. And for that, we could never thank him enough because this life is going to fail and it's failing. It's going to come to an end one way or the other. And there's a place to go. And we thank the Lord Jesus Christ that he has shown us the way to the Father and that is himself. And we thank the Lord also for giving us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, of grace, of supplication, our comforter, our mediator, also intercessor before God, our teacher. And this morning we are going to be working again the testimony of the Holy Spirit because this is not a subject that you find very good teaching on. It's either you have the extreme craziness around the Holy Spirit or you have people who don't even talk about him at all. But God is not silent on the matter. He has said some things 
that are helpful to us in our walk of faith to understand him correctly, because when we do, we also understand Christ correctly. So this morning, we're going to be all over the map. We are going to begin in John 16, verse 5 to 15, and I am going to be reading from the Forbidden New American Standard Bible. <laughs> John 16, 5 to 15. And whilst I'm at this, I'm grateful to all the brothers and sisters who pray for me. I need a lot of prayer, as always. So don't stop praying. I don't have to tell you what's going on, but pray. <laughs> but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. You glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I say that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And that's the word of the Lord. And still on that, we'll read Romans 8, 26 and 27. These are the verses that we used to do or share last week's message. Romans 8. 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have two titles to our message. We have two titles to our message, and they are related. The Holy Spirit, part two. This I say just to make it easy for people to search for the titles. The Holy Spirit, part two. And the second title is The Holy Spirit, Seal and Security. The Holy Spirit, Seal and Security. So I wanted to come back to the topic of the person and work of the Holy Spirit to expand on the testimony from our previous message from Romans 8. And if anyone has not listened to that message, I highly recommend that they go and listen to it. It's a wonderful message. 
But there's not much teaching that is spoken from the pulpits or that is written about him as God has revealed in the scriptures. I remember when I was beginning to study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and I was looking for writing that was not Pentecostal based. <laughs> I could barely find any good works on the Holy Spirit. The two books that I have seen and that I have were one by John Owen, just titled The Holy Spirit, and the other one by Abraham Kuyper. And both of them were not as helpful. Nothing really bad about them, but not as helpful. And then there's not much in Reformed teaching. You will find 600 or even 20,000 books on justification, but you won't get anything on the Holy Spirit that is useful. But it's not, it is not like God has been silent as to not give us some understanding of his existence and his work. It is just that people have usurped the understanding and have attributed their own imaginations as the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Hence, the language of the Holy Spirit taught me this, I was doing this, and then the Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that. And we'll go into the scriptures to extract testimony of his person and work. And that means, as I said, we're going to be everywhere in the Bible. But our message will not be as haphazard. I pray God has given me ability to organize my thoughts and faithfully to make sense of what he has given me. And we begin this way, the Holy Spirit is God. He is not God the Father and is not God the Son, but is interchangeably also called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. That's what you're going to find in the New Testament. He is the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. God has revealed himself first and foremost in the creation. The heavens declare the creation, but that is just general revelation. But as far as the person and the being of God, he has revealed himself through the Son. And in the Son, and we hear the Son saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in this revelation, the Father testifies of the Son, and the Holy Spirit testifies of the Son, and the Son testifies of the Son. He testifies of himself and also of the Father. John the Baptist witnessed of the Son. He gave testimony of the Son representing the law and the prophets. Yet the Lord, when he came, said this in John 5. Let's go to John 5, 36 to 41. 
John chapter 5, 36-41, he said, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. The testimony that I bring is greater than what the law and the prophets give. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. The works that I do, they testify my origin. And the Father who sent me, verse 37, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So Jesus is saying, the testimony of salvation is believing in Christ. He says to the Jews, you do not have his word abiding in you. And the reason is, for you do not believe in me. It's not because you're doing all these crazy things. Your, moral, your morality is bad. You're not being obedient enough. That's not how God measures the matter of salvation. He says, this is the definitive way to know. You believe in me. And he says to them, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. It is they that testify of me. You study the scriptures diligently. You have all the Greek translations, Hebrew translations, Latin. You have all these things. You know every the grammar and all that, and Jesus says, that's not profitable. Everything said and done, it comes down to just me. Okay, your labor, if it does not bring me to me, is not fruitful. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Come to me that you may have life. And guess what? I do not receive glory from men. I don't care <laughs> about your opinion. I don't care what you decide or not decide, think or do not think about me. It adds nothing and it removes nothing from me. This is the Jesus of Jesus. <laughs> not the Jesus that is being preached who is desperate to serve people who don't want to be served. That Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. So it is impossible to read the scriptures and not come to the persuasion that God has revealed himself in these three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet all as one God, co-equal and co-eternal, but revealed in the different economies of our salvation, in the different work of our salvation, in the unfolding chain of our salvation, the father electing and giving his daughter, as it were, the bride to the son. That is the church. And the son coming and redeeming, beautifying her with his own righteousness, and the Holy Spirit 
calling her, teaching, comforting her, and helping her in a journey to the marriage ceremony and bringing her to the son. That is how the scriptures reveal our God. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in their work. So it is also impossible to not see the distinction between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way in which they have been presented to us in the scriptures. And yet, some mock this distinction as creating three gods and prefer to have the Son as both the Father and the Holy Spirit. And that would be modernism. This would be the crowd of T.D. Jackson company. They do not believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one but separate beings, persons, in the one Godhead. Or some not being able to reconcile God's truth would deny the deity of the Son and make him just a created, exalted angel, glorified angel, some even say he is the twin of the devil, but he is the good one of the two. But that will not hold up to a faithful scrutiny of the scriptures. It will leave us with an incomplete story and denial of very important doctrines that are attributed to the different members of the Godhead even in the matter of the creation. When you go to Genesis 1, you're going to hear of God creating from nothing. And then it says, and the earth was without form, was void, had no form. So it was just a mass of mass. <laughs> of debt, as it were. Nothing beautiful about it. And yet, when you read John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, you're going to hear that it was the Son through whom God created the world. So the bringing of the creation into existence was the power of the Son. And then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the creation. So the Spirit of God was giving form to God's creation to be what it is, to beautify God's creation. So you're going to see the Holy Spirit being attributed to sanctification as the spirit of sanctification, if you want. But this is the point. The Son is not the Father because the Father did not die on the cross. Jesus is the son, and this is his origin. He came to us or was introduced to us as the Logos, the word of God, who was from the beginning with God and who tabernacled in the flesh in the fullness of time. He came and was born of a woman, born under the uh, born in the flesh, born of a woman. He was and is the fullness of the Godhead. In Palestine, as he was walking in shoe leather, he was the God of creation. And that truth was revealed 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory that was veiled was made to reveal for a minute, and then he closed it back up. So it is very clear that Jesus was not the Father and is not the Father because he did pray and speak to the Father, and the Father called him his son and said, This is my beloved son with whom or in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hear what he says because it's important. So the Father did not die on the cross and neither did the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit never took up human flesh. But all were at the cross. The Father as the judge pouring his wrath on his Son and the Son receiving the judgment and grounding it as it were on our behalf. And the Holy Spirit sustaining and preserving the Son and giving him the strength and courage to bear the cross and then raising him from the dead. The Lord Jesus, even in his death, still had the Holy Spirit over him because the scriptures say it was impossible for him to see corruption. So the Lord Jesus never started to degrade even in the three days and three nights. He was well preserved. John 12, 27 and 29. The Lord said, Now my soul has become troubled. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus addressed God as his father in multiple sections of the New Testament, of the Gospels. And this not in a creative sense, but in an ontological, in a God way, in a relational sense. The book of John is a Christocentric revelation of the triune God. It's Christ-centered revelation of God. So much of the conversation revolves around the Father and the Son. The Father sending the Son, revealing himself in and through the Son, and the Son coming to do the will of him who sent him but with the Holy Spirit in the background, but anticipated in the teaching of the Samaritan woman at the well and the water that was up to eternal life. In John chapter 4, Jesus is beginning to make some allusions to the Holy Spirit, to say he is there, he's coming, just keep paying attention. 
I want to unfold the understanding. So as the book of John progresses from John 4 to John 7, you're going to hear this in John 7, 37 and 39. John 7, 37 to 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, that was the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his in a most being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit in his fullness was in Christ Jesus. He came when Jesus was baptized, but had not yet been given to indwell believers as a permanent possession until Jesus had been glorified, which was a reference to his death on the cross. The Holy Spirit exerted more power in his operations with the Lord Jesus. But for us, it is according to the measure of grace given us by God. We do have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, but he does not operate fully as he did in Jesus. For us, it is according to the measure. Okay? But this is what I want you to understand about what John has said. The death of Christ was the clause, as it were, that had to be fulfilled in the last will and testament that would give the promised Holy Spirit in other words, the giving of the Holy Spirit was conditional on Christ dying. The giving as to have him indwelling God's people. It was only going to be. The promised Holy Spirit is an Old Testament reference to the teaching of Ezekiel. I think it's Ezekiel 36. To Jeremiah 31, I'll put my spirit in them that's looking to the future. The book of Joel and other places. He was the promised spirit, but conditional on Jesus coming and dying. Okay. I'm going to pick up on that thought a little later in the teaching. But I wanted to speak a little also to the matter in John 12 that Jesus said, the matter of hearing but not understanding. Hear this again to the same verses that we read earlier, John 12, beginning at verse 12, verse 28, sorry. Verse 28 and 29. 
Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, I both glorified it and will glorify it again. But this is what the people who were with Jesus had. Verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying the angel has spoken to him. An angel has spoken to him. God spoke very clear words because John recorded them. But the crowd concluded that it had thundered. Summer rain. And others said, an angel had spoken to him. They surely had something, but did not get the understanding of what was said. The words that were spoken. And this is a very serious and scary matter in this gospel business. Because God is speaking and is teaching. But people are coming and saying, it thundered. They are hearing but they are not hearing with understanding. They are not hearing with understanding. And we have another exhibit with Saul of Tarsus. Paul, Apostle Paul, before he was converted, was Saul. He was devoted to the law and he was trying so hard to extinguish the gospel. To destroy the testimony of Christ. And so he was on one of these journeys on the Damascus, Damascus road. Seeking Christians that he may bring them bound to Jerusalem to be persecuted, even to be killed. And now Paul has to make a defense to the Jews and of himself. Because they knew his reputation. And he was narrating to the Jews about his Damascus Road experience, which matter had happened in Acts 9, or at least recorded in the book of Acts 9, verse 3 to 7. But this is what he said in Acts 22. We want to go to Acts 22. Acts 22, 6 to 9. But it happened that as I was on my way, Approaching Damascus about noon time, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, So, so, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Those who saw, saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of Christ who was speaking. Many this morning are seated in many places of worship who are here in thunder. The preacher has a lot of thunder. <laughs> the man of God has power. Okay. He's breathing hard into the microphone with a lot of power. Seemingly seeing some light, but they're not understanding the gospel arguments. 
You have to begin to think about these things. Use the mind that God has given you. And you know them because they cannot let go of the law. They cannot let go of the law. They will also come and speak zealously of Bible translations and think it is their righteousness. They will talk about their own obedience and how everybody else is not like them. They do not know something that the flesh profits nothing. The words of Jesus. The flesh, the efforts of the flesh profit nothing as far as God is concerned. So what is happening? What is the matter? The matter is that God has not opened their understanding to receive the truth. To see the truth of Christ in its simplicity. The truth of Christ is not that complicated. They are still blinded. And may God help us to hear his teaching because it is needful. We have done a message titled The Abishag Dilemma or Abishag something. It's a very good message that develops these arguments even further. It's a very good message. Abishag. I like the name. Uh, I'd baptize someone. If I was Roman Catholic, give them a new name called Abishag. <laughs> Abi. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is God. I have already said this point, but he was given, or he was to be given in the context of an accomplished salvation. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was there. And we will get a few pictures later. But he was not permanently indwelling the elect. And this is a matter that we have taught before. It's actually some message that I dealt with this extensively. I don't remember the name. You have to ask Sean. But this is a matter that we have taught before. As there are some theological traditions around the matter that go against what God has revealed. And to help someone again, John said this in John 7, 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Will is looking forward to a particular time. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The giving of the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession was conditioned on the death of Christ, his resurrection, and ascension to the Father as a new covenant blessing. John 16, 5 to 15. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
But I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, if I do not go away to the Father, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If I go, I will send him to you. He will mediate my presence in you and to you and will teach you to bring all things to remembrance. And that is undeniable if John was telling the truth. Otherwise, he would not have made that commentary by Jesus. Jesus said, if I do not go to the Father, then you won't have the Holy Spirit. I have to go. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would inspire a work, a writing. All scripture is God-breathed. When you read the Psalms and all these things, they were writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But afterwards, he would leave as happened with Saul. Hence, David, knowing this to have happened to Saul, would write and say in Psalm 51, 11, on account of his sin with Bathsheba, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me because that's how things used to happen. The Holy Spirit was not permanently indwelling. Otherwise, the New Testament would not have presented us this matter the way that John wrote it. And this in keeping with the unfolding reality of the gospel, that the Son would come, take up human flesh, and accomplish all matters of salvation, of righteousness, fulfilling the law, justifying his people, establishing the new covenant in his blood. The Holy Spirit was given to mediate the things of Christ in the new covenant. That is where he has a permanent dwelling place amongst God's people. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit does not come in and then leave a person. Once he comes, he has come to stay. Yes, he will be grieved because of our sin, but he is not going anywhere. He is not leaving. So, it is impossible to have the Holy Spirit and have demon possession. It's not going to happen. They cannot share the same space. The New Testament says this about the Holy Spirit indwelling in 2 Corinthians 1. We actually have a good message. Second Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Paul says, now he who establishes establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. 
who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, who anointed us. The anointing is not some personal attribute of power that causes one to have great exploits in some profession, in some occupation, but is a description of Holy Spirit possession. And that means all who are born again are anointed of God. Everyone who is in Christ is anointed. They have the same anointing because they have the the same spirit. Many do well in many professions who do not have the Holy Spirit. A lot of unbelievers do well, very successfully. They have a lot of money. They rise in life to the highest places that life can take you, money, power, influence can take you, but still do not have the anointing. But God has filled us and gave us the redeemed, the spirit in our hearts as a pledge, as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? Of all the promises that are yes and amen in Christ. If you read the previous verse, verse 20 of First Corinthians 1, that's what he's talking about, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ And now God has given us his spirit as a seal, as a pledge, a guarantee of those promises. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him that is in Christ, you also, after hearing or listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is, hearkening back to the Old Testament. Promise of the Holy Spirit. Sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And also in keeping to what John said earlier in John 12, verse 28, that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified by the death of the cross. But now he's coming, being given by God to do this work of identifying those whom Christ redeemed and putting a tag on them to brand them to say Christ purchased possession. If you've been on an, on a ranch where they have a lot of cattle, they brand with a hot iron, like identity markers, they do different kinds of things. They put some tags on them, or they can actually brand, put an imprint to them to say possession, identity of the owner. A wrecked car still belongs to the person 
whose name is on the title. And we are ragged sinners. We are wretched sinners. And yet we belong to him who has put his name to ours. And the Holy Spirit is God or Christ putting a tag of possession to say this one belongs to me. Okay? We're going to develop this matter because it's very important. It's very wonderful. The Holy Spirit, in being given, is God putting a mark of possession to say, this one is mine. But what else has he been given or why else has he been given? Verse 14, still in First Corinthians, no, in Ephesians, Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 1, verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit indwelling is given as God's pledge, down payment, to say I have a permanent interest in this person. I have an enduring interest and I am pledging to them their inheritance in Christ, which is defined in this context as a view to their redemption, the redemption of God's own possession. The redemption here is not speaking to the removal of sin guilt. That has already been done by the cross. But it's speaking to the final deliverance from sin, from the presence of sin through glorification by the resurrection. So there is the redemption by the blood of Christ, which was the setting free from sin and condemnation, which is justification, and then the redemption of the body which is the making of the new man in power, the incorruptible man, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the corruptible shall be raised in power, shall be raised in incorruption. So Ephesians still, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve him because he is not leaving your house. Because if he was leaving the house, then he would just leave. God says, no, he's not leaving. So be nice to one another, as it were. But the problem is you, you stop your foolishness. <laughs> Do not grieve the Holy Spirit because he does not leave the redeemed because of their sin. But he can be grieved by our sins. But it was by him that we were sealed for the day of redemption, the day of resurrection. 
Again, this is knocking down the idea that the resurrection already happened in 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. That cannot be the conclusion of the matter. The destruction of the temple was Jesus saying, this truly is the end of the law. I'm going to knock down that edifice that was the representation of the law to the Jews. So I'm going to take it down right to the very bottom. This body shall not forever remain in the ground. It shall be reconstituted again in power to be exactly as the body that Jesus has. Because we are being conformed, we shall be conformed to his sinlessness according to his flesh. We will have the same body as Jesus has incorruptible. So here's some, there's someone who made a comment. I had to respond to him on Facebook. They said, now that we have the Holy Spirit, we are able to do the law. No, that's lies, 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 lies. <laughs> Doesn't say anyway that with the Holy Spirit, you now can be exactly like Jesus. Why? Because this body still needs redemption. And as long as it is still needing redemption, you could never claim to be doing the law. It's impossible. So he has to have a very low view of both Jesus and also of the law. But we want to get more understanding to the matter that Paul repeatedly says about the Holy Spirit being our seal. We were sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. What is to seal? What is that language suggesting? When you put a seal to an envelope, to a letter, to those who grew up licking envelopes and stamps, <laughs> postage stamps, yeah, who would lick them. Mm. <laughs> then he just did not send email or text messages. There was nothing called email and there was no text messaging anybody. You had to write the letter, go to the post office and get you some stamps. What is it suggesting? It's suggesting whatever is enclosed is important. It's temper-proof. And it is a mark of authenticity. Mr. Postman, do not open people's mail, just deliver them. And this is what I read online for a more precise definition of a seal. A seal is a device for making an impression in wax clay, paper, or some other medium, including an embossment on paper, and is also the impression that's made. So you have the thing that makes the seal and the impression that both seals. 
The original purpose was to authenticate a document or to prevent interference with the package or envelope by applying a seal which had to be broken to open the container so it could only be broken by the one to whom the letter was addressed. Okay? And God knows this language because he means to communicate something bigger and greater. William Webster Dictionary does have several definitions of the noun seal that are also very instructive and proper to give us understanding. This is what William Webster says. A seal is something that confirms, ratifies, or makes secure. Guarantee. Assurance. A device with a cut or raised emblem or symbol or word used especially to certify a signature or authenticate or document. Something that secures, such as a wax seal on a document, which they used to do back in the day. A closure that must be broken to be opened and that thus reveals tempering. So you have made a closure, and if anyone attempts to open it, then you know there was some tempering that went on. And the dictionary says, a tight and perfect closure, tight and perfect closure, to prevent the passage of water or gas, so as to prevent loss. So when you have a pipe, and you're connecting pieces together, you put a seal in between, just make sure that nothing um, comes out. And God says he has given the Holy Spirit as a seal. God's seal. Christ's seal of what he owns. The Holy Spirit seal indwelling confirms God's interest and permanent possession of you. He is for authenticating the truth of your salvation and your security in it. That you are timber-proof. And that to say salvation cannot be lost. Because it will take someone or it will need to take someone with greater power than that of God to break the seal of the Holy Spirit. Someone greater than God has to come and undo what God has done by the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's signature on all the redeemed. He is God's signature. That's how God signs. He has given his spirit as the signature. Let us hear. If anyone was ever able to break the seal of God, because it's very important. Let's go to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 1 to 10. The Apostle John at the island or on the island of Patmos, and he has this vision. 
John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. No one was found able to unseal that which God had sealed. The redeemed were all sealed first in election in the book of life. That's where your salvation began. Sealed in Christ and cannot be unsealed by death, by sin, by the devil, by themselves, by hunger, by nakedness. Because John says, and no one was found <laughs> in heaven, on earth, or under the earth who was able to open the book. Because you have to break the seals to open the book. And that's saying also, salvation cannot be lost. Because you have to find someone who is able to unseal it to your detriment. Verse 4, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So someone has to be worthy. But why weep, John? Because in the book that was sealed were all the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ. And they must be unsealed by him who is qualified. The promises were made in Christ, so only Christ is qualified to open the book. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, the elder knew something about the gospel. <laughs> Stop weeping, son. <laughs> Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. People are weeping because they know not the truth. They don't know this matter. They don't understand it. At this point, John was weeping because he did not understand it. The elder had to come and say, stop weeping. It's okay. <laughs> stop weeping. I have some good news. And the good news is that the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome by his death and resurrection and is therefore qualified. That is your only hope, my friends, not that you have overcome, but that he has overcome. He has overcome. 
That's our only hope. He has overcome. Therefore, it is well. Stop your weeping. Verse 6, still in Revelation. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders and lambs standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lamb that's standing is Christ as if slain, that's the crucified Christ, seven horns, that's power, perfect power, omnipotent power, seven eyes, that's perfect vision, that's omniscience, he knows all things. This lamb that was slain is God also. And the one who is seated on the throne is God the Father. And he came and took the book out of their right hand of him who sat on the throne. So you have him who sat on the throne and him who is slain coming and taking the book. And that already tells you that God is not just the Father. He's the Son and also the Spirit. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If the Lamb slain was not God, the elders would not have bowed down before him in the presence of one who is sitting on the throne. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, that's the reason why he's worthy, and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's worthy. He overcame and he is worthy. And he is God. It's very clear from this teaching. Only the lamb that was slain is qualified by his blood to break the seals and give God's inheritance to his people and also claim his possession of which the Holy Spirit was the down payment. And John says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So Christ alone qualified. And he has sealed us with his spirit and we cannot be unsealed. We cannot be tempered with. The devil has no password to unseal us. <laughs> now, let's develop more the matter of sinning. We see the seal being used in the Old Testament by Haman and then later Mordecai in the book of Esther and other places where we shall not go for lack of time. Like 1 Kings 21, Jezebel, Ahab, and Naboth over the matter of the vineyards. I am itching to go and preach the gospel from there one day. Uh, when I read it, I was like, ah, and come here. <laughs> but this is where we'll go. Let's go to Esther 8. Esther 8, 
beginning at verse 1 to 8. Esther 8, beginning at verse 1 to 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. So Mordecai and Esther related. Mordecai is he who had raised Esther. And Haman is he who had plotted evil against the Jews and had a decree go out from the king for them to be exterminated. So we now see the reversal of that decree. Verse 2, the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. So we have the transfer of the power that is in the signet ring. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, took charge of it. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. So Esther is interceding for her people as a type of Christ, Esther was foremost a type of Christ. She is interceding for the justification of her people from the condemnation that came by the decree of Haman. Verse 4, the king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. And that means Christ has been accepted by the Father to make intercession for his people. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I'm pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. As I says, if it pleases the king, and I found favor before him, Christ is saying to the Father, if I have pleased the Father and I found favor, then justify my people. Let's see if that's going to happen. Verse 6, for how can I endure to see the calamity, the evil, which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred, of my brethren? I cannot endure to see the torment, the condemnation of my people. And hence, I make the intercession of their, on their behalf. So King Ashura said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows, because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Haman represents the testimony of the law. Haman and his ten sons... <laughs> representing the covenant of the law and its testimony against God's people because of their sin. And so the law has to be hung. The handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us, right, was contrary. He hung on the cross. Now, 
Verse 8. You write the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. You write to the Jews, as you see fit in the king's name, Christ Jesus, you write to your people, as you see fit, but with the power of the Father, the signet ring signifying a decree. Now we are told the reason why you need to seal it with the king's ring. This is the king's ring, King James. <laughs> For a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be set aside, may not be changed. The decree of salvation, of your justification, was written in the name of the king and sealed with his signet ring, even the blood of Christ, and cannot be revoked or set aside. People who say salvation can be lost and stuff, they're just saying they don't know what they're talking about. They just need to sit down, give them something to drink, and, yeah, something to eat. Give them a hug, too. <laughs> Let's hear this testimony again, Daniel 6. Let's go to Daniel 6, 16 to 17. The satraps and all those people who were around the king they were not happy with Daniel and his compatriots, how God had given them such wisdom to do what they did. And they sought out of jealousy to take them out. And so they persuaded the king to have them destroyed. So that's the immediate context of that. So, in verse 16, it says, Then the king gave orders. And Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. So that was the judgment that they would put Daniel, that's Daniel 6, 16 to 17, that he would be cast into the lion's den. But the king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. That's not what the king meant, but God had him to say exactly what was going to happen. Surely the God whom you serve will himself deliver you. And so a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel so the whole idea of sealing was that whatever the decree was could not be changed. That's the idea of sealing in this context. But Daniel is the picture of the Lord Jesus. So he has to be put in the lion's den to be destroyed, but his God recovered him, he delivered him. And even when the Lord Jesus Christ was buried, they went, an instruction was given to seal his tomb 
so that you would not escape. <laughs> right? So that was the fulfillment of this. They went and sealed his tomb, but he still came through. Okay? You can't use duct tape to keep Jesus in the grave. <laughs> so a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And if you're thinking, that's actually the law. Okay? So we, so we have extended messages on this. Go look for them. We have given time to explain more of these things and tie them to the gospel. But this is the understanding of the sinning by the Holy Spirit in the matter of our salvation. And the idea being that it is irrevocable. It is irreversible because of who, who has established it. The Holy Spirit, as it were, is God's imprint of his signet ring on his people and saying the decree of salvation, even the promises of salvation cannot be set aside for the redeemed, no matter what happens, no matter what they go through. And I could expand more on this, but we have other things to say. <laughs> so we we'll switch gears, but still on the topic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's agent of revelation of Christ to those whom God redeemed. He is the agent of revelation. He is the one who calls the elect to Christ. In Genesis 40, 24, in Genesis 24, we, you can be opening and going there because we're going to dug there for the longest time. In Genesis 24, we have a telling of the picture of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but also in the bigger context, a revelation of who God is, the nature of the being of God, as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit represented. When Abraham was old, which was a picture of God the Father. He was a picture of God the Father. He wanted to make sure that he would not die before he had settled the matters relating to Isaac and the inheritance, especially of getting him a suitable bride, a bride that was agreeable with him, to go together with the inheritance. Isaac must also get a bride who will spend his inheritance with her, with him. In other words, give her all his debit cards <laughs> to go spend the money. Okay? This is a message that we have spoken to in depth in previous messages. You can look for it. If you go on someone's audio and just type Genesis 24, it will pop up. But we also have new listeners who may not have heard it before or are new to this kind of gospel presentation and understanding because a lot of people, they present the Old Testament as just stories 
from which we are supposed to get some motivation from how Abraham was committed to this or did not do this and that and a lot of moralistic application teaching. But we cannot do that. That is not a good use or the right use of the scriptures. They testify of the one God, the one Christ, one salvation. Okay. So I'll give a quick overview as I've begun to and will continue now to the story. Genesis 24, 2, beginning at verse 2. So verse 1 has told us that Abraham was old. Abraham said to his servant, the orders of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh and I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you go to my country and to my relatives or to my people and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Abraham is old, as I said, a picture of God the Father, as I said, right? And he had his orders. Faithful servant, Eliezer of Damascus, who was in charge of all things, Abraham, he was in charge of everything. Pay attention to those two things. He was the oldest of the servants, and he was in charge of all things, Abraham. He was the accountant. He knew everything about Abraham's business. And that means Eliezer was a picture of the Holy Spirit who is God's oldest servant because the Holy Spirit is God's oldest servant from the beginning. He has always been in existence and that is why he knows all things God. If the Holy Spirit had become to exist some 20 million years later, he would not have known everything God. So Abraham is old, and Eliezer is old, and Eliezer is in charge of things Abraham. And Abraham had a son, Isaac, who was his heir, and that means in this story, Isaac was a type of Christ. And Eliezer is given a very specific instruction to go fetch a bride for Isaac from Abraham's own people, that is, a bride from God's own elect, the church of Christ, or the church for Christ, from his own people, people who are related to Abraham because the church, the elect, are related to God through election. And Eliezer was put under oath with Abraham to do exactly as Abraham required, things that he deemed were good for his son Isaac. And that means the Holy Spirit comes under oath to bring the bride of Christ to God. He is not going about looking for random people. 
but very specific people. As Abraham said, a wife for my son, for my own people. And these are gospel themes and are not restrictive of people's marriages across racial lines. And some have misconstrued them due to lack of gospel understanding from the pictures and the types. There's a problem when people read the Bible without understanding. Okay? They draw false conclusions of what God is saying. Eliezer loaded up his donkeys with his servants, with presents and gifts to bring over on his mission. And he met with Rebekah at the well and they had a very happy and successful courtship at the spring of water. And these details are all important. The fact that they met at the spring also exegetes who Eliezer was. They met at the water that wells up to eternal life that explains to you who Eliezer is. And this is why Rebecca, just as sister Samaritan, whom I gave the name Sarah, Sarah Samaritan, <laughs> were both excited about the whole experience, about the whole conversation that Rebecca took some of the gifts that Eliezer had brought with him. I'm like, what kind of, who is your mother, by the way? Receiving gifts from strangers. She did. And she was so excited about the conversation that this happened in Genesis 24, 22 to 25. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for a wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? I mean, like, this is a whole band of people, strangers, and they're asking if you have spare rooms at your father's house. But what is this saying? It is saying, will you receive the testimony of Christ in your father's house for me to come to indwell? Will you receive this? She said to him, verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, we have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. In other words, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and if she had a phone, with internet and Facebook, she would have been, before she got home, updating her status with a picture of herself with a hand on a sling weighed down by the gold and <laughs> ten shekels of gold 
hanging on, I shall be 20. More than 200 grams of gold on your neck. Goes, 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 goes. <laughs> she had to update her Facebook status. There's no way. Not in this time. She would have updated it. Taking a picture. So Rebecca ran and told her folks about the whole matter, and they too were excited. They received a testimony, Genesis 24, 28 to 41. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelet on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? This was sovereignty. I don't think he prepared all these things just as Rebecca got home. But that's a lot of preparation. <laughs> I think God had sovereignly already had him to make the preparation. He just woke up that morning and was like, man, I need to prepare this thing. So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on this very important testimony by Eliezer. He says, I will not eat your food. Until I've told my business, until I've delivered my sermon. The Holy Spirit is on a very purposeful journey. It's very important. He's not just loitering around in the world. He will not dabble in your other businesses of life. What house to buy? How to decorate it? Homeschool or not? Homeschool, what sins your neighbors are doing? <laughs> when he has not introduced the matter for which he was sent, he's very purposeful in his visit. He's not a gossiper. He is not even eating your food until he has delivered his message. And this is what he, and this is what he will do. Verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. I am God's servant. That is my identity. I come from Abraham. But what, te what testimony does he bring to authenticate his message and mission? Here, this verse 35, the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. And he has given him flocks and heads and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. 
the dude is loaded. <laughs> he speaks highly of his master. Pay attention to that. Speaks highly of God's riches. Of Isaac's riches. In other words, of his glory. Now, verse 36. Now, my Sarah, now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in an old age, and he has given him all that he has. Abraham and Sarah have a son born in old age. That is Isaac. But Christ Jesus was he who was born when God was in his old age. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? A reference in typology to God as the ancient of days. The eternal one. So Christ Jesus, in the fullness of time, is born of God in his old age. And yet the son is still the Logos who was from the beginning. But according to the flesh, he was as if he was born of God when God was in his old age. And this son has been given all that Abraham, that is God, has. And that means Christ, to whom all power Glory and riches of God have been given. It's impossible for Christ to inherit everything God if he's not God. He won't be able to manage it. He has to be God. To hold all things God. See that transfer. The mirroring of Christ and Isaac. Now my... Now, Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in an old age. And he has given him all that he has. Been given all that he has. Isaac was born as the only son of Sarah. And that looking to Christ, who is the only true son, natural son of God, who is the heir of God. And of course, in the matter of the gospel, we have been made heirs and co-heirs with him. Okay? But this point is about Jesus. But Eleazar continued his presentation and said, verse 37, my master made me swear, in other words, put me under an oath, the Holy Spirit under oath from God to make sure that this is done. Saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you, you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. The Holy Spirit goes out looking for very specific people. He's not looking, as I say, to get everyone saved, but to call the elect who are the people of Abraham who are of the faith of Abraham, as it were, the people of Christ. Verse 39 to 41, I said to my master, suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, the Lord before whom I've walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. He will prosper your journey and 
you take a wife from my son, from my relatives and from my father's house, then you'll be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give it to you, you'll be free from my oath. So Eliezer to the man of men says, okay, what if the girl refuses to come? Abraham says, you'll be set free from the oath. The success of the mission, even though it has some hypothetical question from Elias about its success, will nevertheless succeed because, God says, of the angel that would accompany him, and that means the Lord Jesus Christ is the angel who ensures your salvation, your coming, you are coming. You are coming. The seemingly hypothetical statements relating to the gospel that are found in the New Testament do not mean that salvation can be lost or is in the hands of man to accept or reject or to maintain statements like the one who endures to the end will be saved is not saying you're making it to the end by your own endurance. It's just a statement of fact that all those that are redeemed will make it to the end. He will say to it because the angel of the Lord will make sure that they make it to the end. But only at the conclusion of the matter will Eliezer be released from this earth until he has recovered to God all that were given to Christ, and that means the Holy Spirit's oath is released after the bringing of all who belong to Christ. And God is saying to us, this is serious business on his part, on the Son, and even on the Holy Spirit. They have to look for everyone that belongs to Christ in the nightclub, wherever they can be found, he will get them. <laughs> He'll get them. Genesis 24, 42 to 44. <clears throat> so I came today to the spring and said, Oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold, I'm standing by the spring and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw into whom I say, please let me drink a little from your jar. And she will say to me, you drink and I'll draw for your camels also. Let it be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. The woman that I'll ask for water at the well. If she says, or oh, here it is, you can drink from my jar, then that's the one and this is the meeting at the wall, and the joy, the receiving of Eliezer by the whole family of Rebecca has anticipations. I like the word proleptic of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the wall, because Jesus is at the wall with the Holy Spirit is, is there too. And Jesus says, give me a drink. Yeah, give me something to drink. And the woman says, well, what's up with that? <laughs> you being a Jew, why are you asking 
a Samaritan like myself, a lowly woman, despised woman, to give you water to drink because the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And Jesus turns the conversation around and says, well, if you knew who it is who is asking you for water to drink, you would have asked him to give you water that springs to eternal life. I'm like, uh, so who's thirsty here? <laughs> Jesus is masterful at the dating game. He asked for something that he alone could give. He did not mean the actual physical water, even though he drank the water. I, actually, there's no record that he actually drank the water. He just used it. Probably did drink, but they were on a journey, humanly speaking. But in the matter of conversation, the woman cannot be the one to give water to Jesus because Jesus is the giver of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus turned the conversation around and says, you actually are the one who needs water. And the woman, in her confusion, she's like, uh, I see that you do not have anything to use to fetch the water. So she's reasoning at the flesh level. Yeah? And then she begins to try and figure Jesus out to order him and says, well, uh, we got this well from our father Jacob. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yeah. And Jesus, of course, says anyone who keeps drinking from this will keep coming and drinking. And then the woman in her fleshly thinking again says, well, give me this water then, then I don't have to worry about coming here and dealing with all these issues, all this heat in Palestine. It's too much work, man. Get me some water at my house. Are you a good plumber? <laughs> Jesus says, well, let's finish this conversation quick. Go call your husband. <laughs> And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, this matter has spoken the truth. He has spoken well. But I have some other information about you. You've had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. This you have spoken well. The woman is shocked, like, ah, Jesus, stop getting into my business now. That's too personal. That's... You're getting too much into my inbox. <laughs> Let's talk theology. Let's talk about Bible translations, key James version versus New American Standard. What do you think? You Jews say salvation is from the Jews, but it's in Jerusalem. But our fathers used to worship in this mountain here, Mount Gerizim. What do you say to that? She's trying to change the conversation. You know? <laughs> Jesus says, well, True worship is not about location. It's not real estate business. It's not in this place or that place. Um, the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. Yeah, God is seeking those who worship him in truth and spirit, in truth with Christ as defined in John. 
He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So the truth is Christ, the Father, Father, Son, and the Spirit. So it's Trinitarian. God is seeking those who worship him according to Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is not just saying truthful words. This is referring to the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, the father is seeking those to worship him. And the woman says, well, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And she takes off running. She leaves a water pot with Jesus. She takes off running to go back to a village, just as did Rebecca. Joyful. Because the Holy Spirit has now filled her with the joy of discovering Christ. She tells everybody about Christ and say, come see the man that I met at the world. Could he be the savior of the world? And that testimony was anticipated in the story of Rebecca and Eliezer and Isaac. Okay. God already anticipating that he would reveal himself in this manner, in the salvation of his people. So Sister Samaritan was representing the bride of Christ. She belonged to Jesus with all her shenanigans. Jesus did not condemn her. Jesus does not condemn his people for their sin. Trust me. It's people who condemn other people for their sins. He knew all his sins. She, he just said it, but he did not condemn um, he says, well, five husbands and one live in the six, and you're still going. <laughs> but the real husband has showed up, number seven, that's Christ Jesus. This is whom you need to be married to. The perfect one is number seven, and it's Jesus Christ. Okay? And you can't read that anywhere. The Holy Spirit has give you understanding of that. <laughs> Genesis 24, 52 to 58. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. So these are the three things that the Holy Spirit brings or testifies of. Eliezer did not come empty-handed as a picture of the testimony that the Holy Spirit brings, right? The Holy Spirit comes and does this. First Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given us by God. Things freely given to us by God. That we may know. Rebecca did not go to the mall to get all these items. They were not on sale. They were from Isaac. Through Abraham. But delivered by Eliezer freely as a testimony of the Holy Spirit bringing the testimony of the riches of what we have been made to possess freely in Christ. 
Our blessings are from God through Christ and for the sake of Christ. And God is not having his son get married and starve the bride to death. So there's a testimony of the garments and all the riches there. Those are just pictures of the reality of what we have in Christ. And see that Eliezer did not talk about himself. He just introduced himself as I am Abraham's servant. But now on, I'm going to be telling you about my, my, my master. He does not talk about himself. John 16, 12 to 15. We are almost getting close to getting done. I told you I had been given a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> John 16. It's very important this about the Holy Spirit. The Lord said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You cannot understand them with your own fleshly mind. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, for he will take off mine and will dis disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit speaks of the things of Christ to his people. All things that the Father has are mine. This is Isaac saying all the things given that my Abraham, my father, has are mine. Therefore, I say that he takes off mine and will disclose it to you. Eliezer came and disclosed to Rebekah the things that were of Abraham and yet were of Isaac. Okay? The Holy Spirit does not talk about the Holy Spirit as his message. He talks about the work, the riches, the accomplishments of Christ, and he has no self-esteem issues as to go see Dr. Phil. Where the Holy Spirit is, you hear more of Jesus, and where there's no gospel, there's no Holy Spirit and there's no Jesus. When you hear the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that and that, that is saying there's no gospel. Okay, we're almost done. Isaac was revealed to Rebecca through the testimony of Eliezer. Eliezer was the intercessor, bringing the knowledge and truth about Isaac his riches and glory as the Holy Spirit intercedes in revealing the truth of Christ to us. Verse 54, sorry, of Genesis 24. Then he and the man who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. But a brother and a mother said, Let the girl stay with us a few days. Say ten, afterward she may go. And he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Eliza says, I must go and give a report speedily to my master, if you would let me go. Verse 57, and they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Why? Because salvation is not a transaction that is done for anyone by their parents it is an individual conversation experience in the time 
that God would dispatch Eleazar with a message about Christ, about Isaac. It's an individual experience, individual communication. Verse 58, then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? I think that was the title of one of our old messages. Will you go with this man? And, this, and she said, I will go. <laughs> That's some crazy girl right there. And that is the simplicity of the call in the light of what was presented about Isaac, about Christ. She is basing her decision on what was presented to her about Isaac. Based on what God has revealed about this man, Christ Jesus. God says, will you go with this man, this man whom, to this man whom you have never seen? Will you go with this man, with this testimony, to a man that you have never seen? Rebecca had no picture of Isaac printed or posted digital picture on social media either. She had to go by faith alone, trusting what she had heard from the testimony of Eliezer, who mediated the presence of both Abraham and Isaac. And she said in response, yes, I'll go. And if you should go, that is the only way to go. Yes, I'll go. Hanging only on the thread of this testimony of Christ as God has revealed him through the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to go. You don't need to carry any works with that. What has been presented about Christ is enough for you to live in this life and to live this life by way of death. And so we'll conclude this way. And that by way of recap. I still had more things to say. But we'll pack it here and say, this is the unfolding of the identity of God. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and revealing himself in the giving of the bride to Isaac and Christ Jesus. And this is why it's important to understand the matter of sin and, and Adam. God was not to be known through the revelation of Adam and Eve per se, but only the revelation of Christ Jesus in the church. So sin had to happen this way, that he may be introduced to us through our salvation. And that to say God cannot be known apart from the gospel, apart from the redemption of his people, apart from being given in marriage to Christ, and apart from Eliezer, the Holy Spirit, bringing this knowledge to us. And the Holy Spirit has been given to reveal to us those things that have been freely given to the saints. He comes and confirms, affirms our sonship, our being heirs and co-heirs with Christ. He is the spirit of adoption. And we see the adoption of Rebecca here as a picture of the church. 
a church that was chosen and known of God as Abraham had already chosen a bride for his son, Isaac, from among his people. And this Holy Spirit has been given as a seal, as a down payment, a guarantee of our future redemption. And that means our eternal security. And he is saying we are secure. We cannot be tempered with, we cannot be interfered with, we cannot be unsealed as to be lost again to sin and death because we have not the power to do it and none other than Christ is able to do it. And the one who is able to do it is unwilling to do it. <laughs> He's unwilling to cause our condemnation because he does not change his mind and that to say we cannot lose our salvation and we forever belong to the one who has mugged us out. And that to say, Christ Jesus and amen. We are done. <laughs> wonderful stuff that the Lord has given to feed us of these wonderful things. Yeah. Let's go before him in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful, beautiful words of the Lord Jesus Christ, his revelation, even revelation of who you are through him and the teaching of the Holy Spirit, telling us of Christ Jesus, what he has done to redeem us, as to justify us, and also promised to redeem this fleshly body, to make it incorruptible. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, his faithfulness to come and call us to Christ and presenting the truth of Christ to us and bring conviction to us that we may, with Rebecca, say, yes, I'll go. And that's the testimony of your people in its simplicity. Yes, we shall go to Isaac and Isaac shall receive us in his field in the New Testament in his house, in his mother's house, Sarah's house. We honor you, Lord. Be with us in our going in and going out. May you bring us again to hear the wonderful things of Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, good people. This is a very message. We talk long. <laughs> because we're talking eternal things. Yeah, I'll see you later. The Lord willing, next week we are back in we are back in Romans eight still. We're gonna be talking about all things working out for good to all those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. We're gonna work those decrees and wonderful things. Yeah. <laughs>